Today in the garage, we have William Jaxa to assist me with his very special tribute episode to Edward J. Sapiano. Will Jaxa has been practicing criminal law in Toronto for over 15 years. He has conducted hundreds of criminal trials and other legal proceedings. He has a successful track record of defending clients in criminal proceedings, at professional disciplinary hearings, and on a wide range of summary and indictable offenses. In addition to criminal defense litigation, his practice areas include professional disciplinary proceedings and defending regulatory matters. In today's garage, Will and I have compiled a series of audio stories from some of Edward's friends and colleagues in Requiem of Edward J. Sapiano. The contributors include Liam O'Connor, Justice Stephen Bernstein, Peter Zadik, Roots Gadia, Jennifer Penman, Lior Shemesh, Franklin Lyons, Alex Tricka, and Marianne Salee. I want to thank them all at the outset for sharing their stories. I know it was bittersweet for them, as it has been for us to work on this tribute. But we all feel that the legal community should remember Edward J. Sapiano, gone too soon. Whether you're driving your Toyota RAV4, feeding your goat, or taking the time to take down the entire drug squad, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune Will, thank you very much for coming in today for this very special episode of The Law Garage. Marco, thank you for having me. Will and I uh, met as articling students. Yeah. 2006, 2007. Yeah, 2006, And that's where I met Edward J. Sapiano, because you were articling for Edward Sapiano. That's right. We met it during the uh, Jane Creva preliminary hearing. And that preliminary hearing took place over the course of several months in Scarborough in this makeshift gangster prosecution court. Yeah, it was one of the first ones they had there. It was... Uh piecemeal with the way they had the clients sitting in various boxes and what i remember specifically about that case was obviously it was a high profile case but it was also a cutthroat defense oh it turned out to be a cutthroat defense and the interesting part about it was it was opposing shooters shooting at each other and edward's client was on one side and the rest of the accused i think there was seven of them were on the other side um, so it was basically seven against one, You're right? Oh, yeah. It ended up being 14 lawyers against one. Right. And what was interesting, though, was that it didn't start off as a cutthroat defense. If you remember, the prelim, it didn't start as a cutthroat defense. I, uh, I remember clearly that Edward gave his junior on that uh, trial instructions on not to run a cutthroat defense. Right. And I recall very specifically... When it started to become cutthroat, Edward, in the hallway of the court, getting into a very heated argument with one of the senior lawyers. And he said to the senior lawyer, I thought we weren't running a cutthroat defense here. You gave me your word that this wasn't going to be a cutthroat defense. And the lawyer said, I have to do what's in the best interest of my client. He's like, well, you're a man of integrity. If your word doesn't matter, then why should anybody's word matter? Or unless you're not a man of integrity. It was like this cross-examination in the hallway of the court with these, these lawyers arguing with each other. Do you recall that? I do. I do. I do. And I was an articling student at the time, and I'm watching this go back and forth, and everyone was kind of feeling uncomfortable. Then Edward walked away, and I'm sitting there, standing there holding his briefcase. 
it's it's very weird too in the dynamic as an articling student because you and I were friends. There were other articling students involved, and all of a sudden you have to take like your sides in this very tense situation in the hallway of the court. And I remember that it spilled into the actual courtroom. It spilled into the courtroom. It spilled over uh, lunch breaks. Uh, I was invited not to have lunch with you guys anymore. And it's not like we had very many options at that time in Scarborough, but um, you know the bingo hall had a good a good lunch rec, a good lunch uh, menu. Uh-huh. So I remember there was this one situation that occurred where where there was an opportunity. Uh, Edward wanted to bring an opportunity or an application to the judge, and the judge dismissed or wouldn't hear it. He had uh, the junior. She brought the application. The application was dismissed. He then later instructed me to bring the same application again as an articling student. The application was dismissed. And so on one of his days off from the uh, Toronto 18 terrorist trial that was going on at the same time in Brampton, he showed up in Scarborough to run that application. And the judge would not allow him to bring the application and told him it's already been heard sit down and then i remember that i've never something happened that i've never seen happen before well there we was, were baby lawyers at the time we hadn't seen much happen before right but i haven't seen it happen since let me put it to you that way yeah he he effectively had a, a quiet protest in the courtroom because he was so that courtroom was big and edward was sitting in the very last row of the defense counsel table so there was three or four rows and we were up near the front, I think we were in the second row, and Edwards was sitting in the back row. And and at one point all I, I remember hearing the judge say, Is there a problem with the ventilation, Mr. Sapiano? And that triggered everybody to look. And Edward was sitting there, feet up, no coat, no no jacket, no tie, reading the newspaper. Yep. Yep. Uh, so after the uh the judge uh dismissed the application the proceeding started the witness was on the box and as the witness was on the box edward stood up loosened his tie took his jacket off put it on the back of his chair out of his brief bag uh, took uh, a newspaper unfolded the newspaper put his feet up on the desk and started reading and then at one point looked at me got angry with me because i was typing what the witness was saying slammed my laptop down and said no just sit there yeah. And, and that proceeded like that for the next few hours with his feet right. up on the table, drinking coffee, flipping through a newspaper. Yeah, it was it was ignored by the, the judge for a significant period of time until I think it was I felt like it was after lunch, but it might have been before lunch. Just before lunch. Just yeah. before lunch. The, the comment came from the judge about the ventilation and then Edward went off. And I, I remember his comment was, well, if this court is not going to have any respect for counsel, then why should counsel have any respect for this court or something to that? effect like it was an argument like that and um all uh you know yeah well only edward could get away with something like that yeah. imagine trying to do that today no i i know none of us are that well that, and that's what made him unique i mean we're going to hear in some of these stories um some of the people will say what i'm about to say may, may not be the most flattering account of edward sapiano and it might not be flattering on the general sense of what we expect counsel to be, but to a certain extent, it was his uniqueness and his, you know, fearlessness that made him special in our bar. 
And so, yes, that wasn't the most flattering account, but it was still something that I sat there and I, I just remembered the courage that it takes for somebody to do that. Um, so before we get into the episode, I'm going to ask you, because every guest gets asked the same question, but I'm going to ask it at the outset because, you know, I've basically paid you and beaten you into giving me the answer that I want to this question. So I'm going to ask it now so that it goes nicely with the rest of our episode if it's true or not, but I know it's true. What lawyer do you feel fortunate to have seen litigate before the end of their career? Well, I think the answer you want me to say is Edward J. Sapiano. Would that be the answer that you would have given me regardless? I was thinking about that, and that's probably where I would have landed, but but for different reasons. No, well, whatever the reasons are, tell me. I, as an articling student, I got to spend lots of time with him, and I got to see him meticulously prepare for his trials the way he'd pour over disclosure, rewrite and write over his submissions and bounce the submissions off me, bounce submissions off other lawyers, the way he would prepare, and then I would watch him walk into court. And that same piece of evidence, that same sort of disclosure, that narrative that he was pushing, um, you would see him executed during the course of the trial. It was sometimes subtle, sometimes it was a big, bold move, but it... it, uh, I saw behind the scenes and then I saw it happen and play out in court. And I, and I think that gave me a little bit more of an insight into how to litigate. And then, you know, very few could deliver the way Edward could deliver in court. And so it's something that, you know, we're saying, well, we don't, we don't usually want to mimic other lawyers, but you want to take little nuggets from the people that you watch and I, I know I took some nuggets from Edward. I'm sure you have over the years. Um, I remember after we went out, after I was called to the bar several years later, I went out on my own and I turned to Edward um, and I told him that I went out on my own. And, and I remember him saying to me, look, I'm going to tell you, just send me a line, send me an email. Just say, hey, Edward, I'm, I'm out on my own. Just send me once in a while because I forget who's out on their own. And I get a lot of calls from a lot of clients and I always forget to who to give them to. But if you do that, I will guarantee that I will get you work. And I remember there was one case very early on when I left the firm. You and I and Edward were on together. It was an extortion case with some, um, some guys hung a guy over a balcony uh, in a hotel in Markham or the allegation was that it happened in Markham, but they were charged in Toronto. It was set a trial. There were two brothers and one was facing deportation back to China. And Edward said, do you want this? Cause I'm bringing you on and I'm bringing Will on come to my loft and let's talk about it. And so that was my, that's a long way around the end to get to the first time I went to Edward Sapiano's loft. Yeah. Well, there, there's a couple of things there, but the, he had that problem with, well, not problem, but he made that request of a, yellow, a lot of young lawyers coming out is make sure that I keep remembering who you are. I like you. Email me. Call me. If I forget you, I forget you. That's right. And you know what? He was very helpful. And I'll tell you, that retainer, I remember specifically, that retainer was my first um, significant private retainer. And I remember going back home and, and telling my dad, Hey dad, this, you know, this lawyer, Edward Sapiano, 
gave me this private retainer and you know it's a lot of money and it's a good case and he, he wants me to do it and he said this he just gave you that work so for my father anybody who's giving work to you like if you're working you're good and so he's like you have to you have to keep a relationship with somebody who's going to give you work because giving you work is the best thing it's what you do with it that matters but at least somebody's giving it to you and that started my relationship with edward so i always made it a point to go and bring him a bottle of wine the first time i made a mistake i brought him a nice bottle of wine and he told me why are you wasting your money i like cheap wine which made my life easier so from that point on i just brought him cheap wine but the first time i went to his loft was during that case and um you know i was t- i was taken aback by his loft it's just it was in regent park beautiful factory we have liam o'connor who's going to describe it more fully but I'll just tell you my first impression. It had a long wall of artwork on the wall. And Edward told me that most of his artwork was from his travels because he was, he'd travel a lot and he would have it shipped back. And, um, you know, he had this antique treasure chest that had all this loose coin and bills in there because he said he never liked to carry change around. And it was full. It looked like it just got dug up from, uh, from like a treasure ship or from the ocean or something. Um, he had a shiny Harley Davidson, a view of the lake. And then I noticed this huge oil painting of a lawyer in tabs standing in front of the court of appeal. Stunning blonde. And I said, who is that? And he said, he said, that's Kim Schofield. She's a fantastic criminal defense lawyer. And I started laughing. I said, how did you get that painting? And he said, I had it painted because she's magnificent. That was the first time, I remember specifically, that was the first time I ever heard of Kim Schofield. That was my introduction to to her in an oil painting. Oil painting in a loft downtown in Regent Park. You had an idea that we were were spitballing just before we started the podcast that, that the loft is still available. Yeah, the loft is now owned by one of his goddaughters and she rents it out. And so it's available for rent if you ever want to throw a party or a porn shoot or... Whatever you're thinking. So let me let me um, play for everybody Liam O'Connor's uh, summary of Edward Sapiano's uh, loft. I know somewhere out there Edward J is uh, listening and laughing his ass off because uh, he loved to laugh. And he loved a good story. The residence he bought was one of the, the first places in the area that built lofts. And he bought it. A beautiful loft back when you could still buy cheap uh, property in Toronto. It was the start of the gentrification of Regent Park when after the poor of Toronto were displaced by the city geniuses and planners. Uh, uh, I don't know where they pushed them, but uh, they got them out of Regent Park. Uh, Certainly when Edward moved in, though, it was still gritty and real and full of life, and Edward loved that. it was before what the people we called dinks moved in, double income, no kids. Um, no, Edward uh, lived uh, there when there was, when he still felt there was, he was living amongst the people, the real people, the downtrodden, the oppressed, the marginalized. Uh, Edward loved it down there. Uh, plus, he was a smart businessman. He got it when it was cheap and made, uh, made a lot of money um, on it and in his business and his law practice. Um, and he, he always told us, don't be ashamed. 
you're allowed to make money. This is, this is, you don't have to help poor people not make money. And he was always mad when, uh, when he see lawyers in old city hall, uh, get paid for a bail hearing and take their clients off to the side and, uh, sort of secretly get their, you know, 500 bucks or a thousand bucks for doing a bail hearing. And Edward's position was, no, you don't have to hide. No, do it in the open. Um, people should know you're getting paid and paid properly. Um, you shouldn't be ashamed of getting paid. Um, his loft was originally an old uh, distillery. I don't think it was a Gorth, Gorthelman and Warts, the old one down there. I think it was actually an older one um, in a in a what was probably a very nice building 200 years ago. Um, but uh, it was very early on in the in the in the changing of Regent Park. Um, and his loft his, his loft was really spectacular. A, a great view, uh, floor to floor windows, floor to ceiling windows, uh, great expensive dark hardwood, ceramics, uh, chef's kitchen, uh, and you usually find Edward sitting there with a, a bottle of wine and a, and a spliff or, uh, or marijuana, smoking marijuana openly in his place, um, long before it was legal. Uh, he had built-in oak bookcases when you, uh, once you had to climb la a ladder to get to the top shelf, um, several ladders, um, he had a massive four-poster mahogany bed, the ones you see in, in stately British homes with curtains coming down all the sides, a, a grand entranceway, um, really a spectacular place, eventually, uh, had a big chrome Harley-Davidson parked in the middle of the, of the living room. I think he got it off a client uh, who owed him money. I don't believe he ever drove it. He just just uh, just sat in his living room for years. Um, but Edward wanted to live amongst the people, um, the people that he helped and represented. Uh, and he did a good job of that. Um, also, as a, as a side, he he supplemented his mortgage. Probably got his half his mortgage paid. This was ninety five very early on in the internet and somehow he was approached by some soft porn company and uh, they would rent it out while he was at work and um, you could go on the internet and see uh, very attractive, mostly East European women uh, um, standing on his bookshelf uh, naked uh, in his bed uh, at his kitchen table uh, but that, uh, that supplemented the mortgage and paid half of it, I think, for, for, for many years, um, back when the internet was new. So that's as good a description as we're going to get of Edward's loft. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, he got it pretty right. We, um, we're not here to talk about his loft, but his loft was, it was pretty spectacular. And for me as a young lawyer, um, going there and, and seeing all that it had, I was pretty much in awe. I, I thought it was probably one of the most spectacular lofts I've seen. I haven't seen that many, but it was really nice. No, he was very proud of it. It was nice. It was uh, it was his little lair. He had that a very interesting um, fireplace mantle, which I think he also got on his travels. There was some of the decorative artwork around there was on his travels. Some of it was actually bought at auction. Right, right. Um, and it was like made in the 1500s. Like the the moldings around the mantle was something that he. I th I don't know if it was did he go to India or China or something. It, it was China uh, auction. It was just sort of 
pieced together from a number of different places. Yeah, it looked really good. And then, as Liam said, they had that bookcase with the the, the ladder that rolled around and all these books. I probably never read any of them, but they were there, and they looked really cool. Yeah, yeah. And I also had a little secret compartment in there. Um, so this is the way the episode's going to play out today, is we we have all these clips, and I've tried to kind of break them down into several kind of themes. Where we're going to go first is the loft was something that was just in, you know interesting because Will and I, we had this early connection there, and, and we've seen each other there at many occasions. Um, and I thought Liam provided a great description of it. But the first cluster of of uh, clips and stories we have are from Roots Gadia and uh, Stephen Bernstein and Liam O'Connor, and they all they're all clips about um, the early days of Edward's career at Pinkowski's Locklear, where he uh, where he started his practice. So. I'm going to start by playing a clip from uh, Roots Gadia. Memories of Edward Sapiano. There are so many. So I articled at uh, PLK back in 1995-96, and Edward was an associate who was at the prime of his career and life. I knew and had heard of his reputation before I'd even arrived there. A gold medalist at Queens, a pit bull in court, and apparently also someone who used to piss off judges. I remember walking by his office once and he was lying on the floor on his back, sleeping. And I was like, what's going on? And I found out afterwards that he would take power naps throughout the day for about 20 minutes at a time. And he'd literally jump up to life with the zest and enthusiasm of a teenager. A few times I had the opportunity to have him give me a pep talk. This business is hard, and sometimes you get beaten up in it. And he would say, fuck them, Roots. Fuck the cops. Fuck the crowns. Fuck the judge. Just go in there and tell them all to fuck off. I knew he wasn't being literal, but I got the impression that the pep talk was designed to give you strength and courage in the face of adversity. He was great for that. Even over the years, as his illness came on him and the years that followed where he was bound by a machine connected to his body, you could always stop him and pick his brain on how to deal with an issue. The last time I saw Edward was at 361 University. I was in a superior court trial. He was there as well. He told me all about his machines and contraptions. He did it with joy as if somehow this was the coolest thing ever. And I asked him opinions on various things, and he would tell me. He was a little bit more tempered. He wasn't all about fuck you, fuck the judges, fuck the cops, fuck the crowns. He was a little bit more tempered as he aged. But there was always that fire in him, that exuberance. And I'll forever miss him. He is a loss to not just me personally, but a loss to the defense bar. We don't have many lawyers like Edward Sapiano anymore, people who will stand up in the face of adversity and tell them all to fuck off. Stephen Bernstein. One of my favorite stories about Edward Sapiano is when we were students 
and we would be foolishly still working together at 2 or 3 in the morning at the office at 123 Edwards Street, 15th floor. Might have been the 12th floor. In any event, Edward would say, Bernstein, I'm going to take a power nap. He would lie down on the floor, facing the fluorescence, for about 10 minutes in usually Doug Usher's office at the time. And I would be looking at him, and one night I decided I would try it. And I couldn't quite make it happen for me. But he would jump up after 10 minutes, be ready to go for another three hours. He had incredible energy and drive. Liam O'Connor. When I got there, Edward uh, loved to call himself the firm's rainmaker. Um, I was just initially um, came in as a tenant. I wasn't part of the firm at that point. I, I I was renting as a sole practitioner in 95. Uh, but on my first full day, when I came in after court, I came in about 5 p.m., um, I heard screaming from the elevators. I didn't know who it was. I heard terrible screaming. It was clear. Uh, eventually, there was Edward, and he was giving uh, legal advice to some individual who had the police at their door, and Edward, uh, Edward's considered legal opinion or his legal advice was shouted at the top of his lungs for everybody in the entire building floor to hear. And it was, and I quote, you tell the police to go fuck themselves. You tell them to go fuck themselves and tell them Edward J. Sapiano said, you can go fuck yourself. Um, Edward was gesticulating, perspiring, um, veins were popping out of his head. I had never seen anything like it. And... After he put the phone down, he was laughing like hell um, at his pomposity and his advice. Um, he was very sure of himself, very satisfied with himself, very satisfied with his advice. Um, and that was really my first introduction to criminal law, um, real criminal law. So those are the early stories of Edward Sapiano. Well, yeah, those stories, though, uh, that same advice followed through and through and through. I think it was in 2008, 2009. He once told me I was preparing for a trial. He was going through my submissions with me and working my arguments out with me. And he said, if the judge ignores you, he's not listening to you. You need, you need to stand up and stand on the table and start yelling at him and say, go fuck yourself if they don't believe you. That will get their attention. I'm like, I'm a baby lawyer. It doesn't seem like it's in your personality to do that either. No, no, (laughs) not in my personality. Well, I mean, that was the, I remember when we argued... Um, we were arguing on that on that same case on the Kriba case when we were arguing the I think it was the Garofoli application, and and Edward said, "Listen, you, to me, he said, listen, you're the judge is going to have no time for this. He's going to have no time to kick wiretaps on a case where an innocent fifteen year old girl has been murdered, right? And she's not going to have any time for you. So don't let her ignore you." Make sure that she understands what you're saying and that she's listening to what you're saying because at the very least, your client will see that you are making an impression and give them some sense of hope. And it was very hard for me as a very young lawyer at the time making those submissions with all these senior counsel behind me. But I remember him afterwards saying, you, 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 you evo- evoke some emotion in your submissions. And that was the, the first time I was able to actually do that in, in any case, so... He was he was very kind to young lawyers. He was also very generous with his advice. Um, 
another old friend of his, um, Nadir Sachak, sent me an email uh, to contribute to this episode. I just want to read it. It said, in the summer of 2015, Edward called me. He invited me to his farm in Portal. He told me to bring my boy and my wife. I asked him what I could bring. His response was, lemonade. I took my family to his farm. My son never met Edward. Edward had him holding a shotgun, had him driving an ATV, and enjoying a bonfire. Edward's idea of a bonfire was to pile up logs, pour tons of gasoline, tell us to step back while he threw a ton of matches on it. Edward and I sat on the couch and reminisced about our days of articling at PLK. Ironically, it was the first and last time we were socializing together, alone. A perfect host, yet so unorthodox, weird and bizarre. Several days later, he called me. He said, you got a boy. Why don't you take my cottage? He'll like it. It will cost you nothing. Just look after it. Need I say more? A bizarre, weird, and unorthodox man with a heart of gold and a soul of an angel. Thanks for that contribution, Nadir. Liam O'Connor provided some information as well with respect to Edward's um, personality in this regard and his just generosity. And I just want to play a clip from Liam's uh, contribution. He got into criminal law uh, after winning the, the gold medal at the University of Manitoba. Um, and some people think that's where the story starts, but it didn't. It started before then. And, and uh, he didn't hide the story. He, he, he told it uh, regularly, but uh, he got into uh, criminal law after being charged himself with drug trafficking. I've forgotten what the uh, what the drug was. I'm assuming it was marijuana, but uh, it led to him believing that uh, you've got to fight the police. And um, his philosophy was: you get charged, hire the best lawyer you can, and pay them whatever they need to get you out of that. That was his. That was his philosophy. That was his theory. He was adamant, adamant about it, and uh, and didn't really care for clients who uh, who had the ability to pay but chose not to. Uh, he was quite happy to help the, the poor and those couldn't afa- couldn't afford to be paid. But if you could afford to be paid and you wouldn't pay, uh, Edward wouldn't had no time for you. Um, and he made a lot of money. Uh, he was incredibly generous about it. Um, he had what he what he named godchildren, and he had set up. These were just young kids, friends, uh, children. And very young, he set up bank accounts for them and trust funds and education funds. He was, he was incredibly generous with his money. Um, even after the firm, he, after he left the firm, he set up a, a kids' party at his, at his, uh, at his loft. And it was, it was uh, I think the only way I can describe it is magical. Um, he had streamers, he had balloons, he had presents dropping from parachutes out of the ceiling. Um, uh, I expect it, any any children that attended it will probably never forget it. Uh, and he was dressed to the nines, uh, all dressed up in a costume, but an incredibly generous guy and generous with with kids. Um, but just a, a part of Edward that a lot of people don't know about. Well, 
Edward loved his godchildren. And yeah, some of them uh, came from disadvantaged homes and broken families. And he, uh, he paid for their university and college degrees, helped them out with their purchase of their homes. And um, he loved and supported these people uh, all the way to the end. But it wasn't only uh, his godchildren. There was a few lawyers that uh, found themselves at crossroads. Um, one lawyer in particular had to go into uh, addictions counseling and his marriage dissolved and he lived with Edward for many, many months and Edward fed him work and made sure that he got his practice up and running and supervised him and other lawyers that uh, needed to go for therapy, he paid for their therapy um, for their to go away for addictions to, uh, counseling. Um, he was generous, generous with his time, generous with his money. Um, yeah, all the way to the end. And, you know, I, I know that we, from our perspective, I mean, even from a prof- on a professional perspective, like a lot of these stories don't get told because they're private and personal. But as a lawyer and as a senior lawyer, his generosity um, was also something that came through loud and clear. Like, for instance, I know that he, I remember early on, the articling students at Pinkovsky's would tell me, you know, they have this, uh, this resource called, uh, the police information gathering system, the acronym, the police information gathering system. And they were, they were very proud of it. And I remember mentioning to Edwards and he said, that's not theirs. That's mine. That's my thing. That's not their thing. They only have that because of me. And, I didn't know what it was, and it was a, a, a private compilation of information of police officers, I guess, where they were, there's findings against them. Are you familiar with that, Will? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think uh, Steve Bernstein's also pretty familiar with that. But, yeah, it was um, findings of uh, judges' findings, and I get them little pieces of information, uh, stories from clients that all got put into this little database. Right. It was a, in modern terms, we use database, but... Liam O'Connor tells us that originally it was actually a physical folder and it was something that um, he claims was uh, uh, improperly seized by Edward on his way out of the Pinkovsky firm. And I'll just play this clip. Yeah, right. Let's just hear this one. He also grabbed what uh, at the time was simply a large black binder full of mostly newspaper clippings and a few judgments. they were all about police misconduct, uh, the arrest of police officers, all before the internet. It was really a, just a paper file. Um, and if memory serves, it was actually Reed that started compiling the, the, the police file of wrongdoings. But Edward grabbed it on the way out, uh, so he not only ran with it, but then he actually ran with it and turned it into the uh, eventual computer-organized filings that, and system that he's famous for having developed. Um, and I give Edward full full credit for the name. Um, it was That was Edward's baby. Edward's uh, idea to name it the Police Information Gathering System. Um, consider the acronym. That was the uh, PIGS file. Police Information Gathering System. P-I-G-S. Um, and Edward loved to shout that out loud when if you needed to know what happened or... or facts on a particular officer to let me get 
my pig's file. And then he laughed like hell. Uh, apart from the pig's file, Edward became a, a thorn in the side of the Toronto Police Service for a variety of reasons for, for certainly the 25 years that I knew him. From, uh, from small things uh, to larger ones. Uh, in terms of small things, Edward uh, was famous for, for, for telling clients who were going in, uh, submitting to an arrest and uh, either being delivered to the police station or going on their own. They, Edward made sure or told them that they had to eat a couple of cans of beans before they went in, and uh, that would either speed up the interview or uh, end it early. Um, uh, in terms of bigger being a bigger thorn in the side for the police, I, I I remember the first big issue he took up was drops dropsy cases, what we call um, possession cases of, of usually cocaine, where the police are alleging that uh, they simply walked up to a, an individual and the person just dropped their bag of uh, of narcotics at their side or behind them. Um, we call them dropsy cases, and back then there was a a growing body of uh, case law from the states where defense lawyers were challenging this idea that people would suddenly drop their drugs and um, because police showed up and judges were starting to say yeah we don't we don't we don't accept it this is ridiculous um, there can't be all these people just simply dropping the drugs when a police officer shuffles up um, and Edward took that and, and ran with it in, in the Toronto area and started challenging all these dropsy cases. Um, I had done a little sort of private uh, investigation myself to, with clients to see whether they were actually dropping the drugs. And as far as, in, as, far as I knew, they were, but, but there was this growing body of case law. Um, and suddenly Toronto judges... Uh, were not believing police officers and, and coming up with damning judgments against them. Um, Edward laughed like hell when I told him, I said, my clients are actually dropping the drugs, but uh, uh, he said bullshit. Uh, and he was the guy that really, suddenly police officers were, 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 were no longer saying clients were dropping drugs. It just suddenly ended uh, because it was just becoming too much trouble. Uh, um, but Edward was certainly, certainly behind that. Um, I remember... In the midst of all that, when he was was really leading the charge and, and getting increasing the number of judgments we had in the pigs file, um, he got hit by a car on the way back from College Park, and uh, this was again sort of before the internet. But even without texting and and emailing and uh, and the internet, uh, news spread like wildfire that he got hit by a car. And and I'm I'm telling you, there was I can assure you, there was more than a few officers that were hoping that that would. Uh, have silenced Edward, but it didn't, and uh, he came back uh, just as strong, I think, after a broken leg, but uh, that, that couldn't stop him. You know, he told me that story about getting hit by a car. He told me it was right, it was coming, it was on college right in front of the police uh, headquarters, and that uh, a flurry of officers came out and were saying, that's good for you, that's good, that's, you deserve it. I don't know, I didn't believe him, but... It's still he, funny. He told me that uh, he got hit the very next morning. He was back in court with his leg in a cast litigating. But well, that that I believe. I don't believe that officers came out of uh, out of police headquarters uh, cheering for for his uh, him getting hit. But you know, that's the first initial early um, 
stages of Edward challenging the police. But we all know what the bigger one is. The bigger one is obviously the the, the Toronto drug squad. The Schweitzer case, yeah. The Schweitzer case, yeah. And uh, or Schertzer, I think it was. But that um, everybody undisputably attributes to Edward. And Liam provides a, a, a pretty good account of how that unfolded. And the reason why that case is important is because it really shined a light on the behavior of the drug squad officers and took a long time to get to trial and ultimately resulted in some findings of guilt. and just. But it put a spotlight on the police for a long time. Put a spotlight on the police for a long time, but it also put pressure on the Crown's office. And how are they going to deal with this? How is the PPSC going to deal with this information? How is the provincial crown going to deal with this? And uh, it really held them to task for a little while, too. Here's Liam's account of this. He's also probably most remembered, I think, legally for, for during the 90s and 2000s for really being behind the biggest investigation of the Toronto Police in their history, starting at, starting at to that point. Um, Back in the 90s, our bread and butter as defense lawyers came from crack cocaine. Um, Regent Park and various other areas of Toronto, um, often associated with Ontario housing, um, unfortunately. But I tell you, we none, there wasn't one lawyer who couldn't give you 10 stories about their clients claiming that they had money stolen from them by the police. And a lot of clients... Um, who were dealers, saw it as the price of doing business. Um, and they knew that there was no recourse. And lawyers really didn't uh, care too much about it. They heard the stories, but nobody did anything about it. Nobody. Um, because we just considered ill-gotten gains, drug money. Who's going who's gonna to give a damn? Um, Edward did not feel that way. Um, he thought something had to be done, and he wasn't going to let it go. And he was—that was—that was his. Like, put a bee in his bonnet. He couldn't stand that, and he made it his personal um, thing to go after the Toronto Police Service, particularly the, the Central Drug Squad, um, and because he got tired of, of, of clients claiming their their money was stolen, and nobody did anything about it. Um, uh, at first, and, and there was no political will back then. Back in those days, police officers, even if they were charged, never got convicted of anything, um, or so rarely it was, it was ridiculous. But um, he went after them, uh, used the media, uh, used the press, um, made um, the Crown's office go after officers. Um, originally, it was eight officers charged with stealing uh, money and jewelry and all sorts of items from, from various houses and safety deposit boxes um, of drug suspects. Um, and, and later, it was discovered uh, that they were taking money from a, a fund set up to, to pay drug informants. It was called the Fig Fund. Well, that was the name that the press gave it. But uh, there were staff sergeants involved, or staff sergeant involved, uh, detective constables. Um, it led to a, a crazy legal odyssey for... 15 years, um, uh, state charges, reinstituted charges, 11 v applications, uh, 
But eventually, after about a 15-year odyssey, um, around 2012, um, having started in the late 90s, um, Edward's work, Edward's instigation, um, Edward's resoluteness led to five former drug squad officers, including that staff sergeant, uh, being convicted of attempting to obstruct justice, um, ruined all their careers, um, sent all of them, or most of them, spiraling into uh, all sorts of other problems, if you, if you followed at the time. But it was, it was a wild time. Um, I think another three officers were convicted of perjury. Uh, but it was something that certainly Toronto had never seen, but it, it uh, people talk about different things through the history where Toronto lost its innocence. So I, I think it lost its innocence uh, in those drug prosecutions of the 90s that were wouldn't have happened without Edward putting pressure on everybody because there was no political will before that. Um, zero, nothing, nada. Um, nothing, no reason to go after these officers until Edward forced everybody to. Now, we've, we all know about his courtroom presence, and we talked about it a little bit already, Will, but um, there's an interesting story uh, provided here by uh, Peter Zadek that uh, pretty much summarizes, I think, um, Edward separating himself from the rest of the crew in, uh, in many cases. I don't know this story. My name is Peter Zadek. I first met Edward Sapiano in 1993 when he was a new associate at Pinkowski Lockyer, where I was sharing space at the time. Edward was a unique lawyer. Uh, he had boundless energy. Uh, that's not to say he always had the best judgment, but he picked good fights and often... He lost these fights, not for uh, want of trying, but perhaps for lack of, uh, of judgment. Uh, some of his fights were eminently worth fighting, such as when he made an application to have the fearsome judge uh, Eugene Uistrak recuse himself on the basis of bias that Uistrak threw a long and a storied career, had almost never ruled for the defense and almost always had his finger on the scale in favor of conviction. Edward actually led evidence in front of U.S. Chuck on this recusal application in the form of inmates from the Don Jail who said that U.S. Chuck's nickname in the Don Jail was You Is Fucked. Now, I want to tell a story that uh, may not seem to Edward's uh, advantage, but it's something that reflects his personality and reflects the way in which he often practiced law, one speed, full steam ahead. In the year 2001, I remember the date because 9-11 happened in the middle of our trial, Edward and several other lawyers and myself defended a case called Regina versus Zebedee et al. before a jury in Belleville before Mr. Justice Keeley. It, it went to the Court of Appeal under the name of Zebedee. This involved a, uh, 
local gang in uh, Belleville and area. Um, Bill Zebedee uh, was the uh, elder of uh, this alleged criminal family uh, that cornered the cocaine business in uh, Belleville and the theory of the uh, prosecution. He was charged together with two of his sons and a nephew and my client, a man named Jason Wise, who had previously been convicted of two murders. What was alleged in this case was that this gang kidnapped uh, a couple of young men who owed them money for drugs. Not an awful uh, large amount, as I recall, maybe $1,000 or $1,500. But they would kidnap them off the streets of Belleville and take them to uh, a basement in a house that they controlled and uh, subject them basically to torture. So we had about a month-long trial in front of a very difficult judge. Edward was flying. He was uh, in complete confrontation mode, fighting with the judge at every stage. Uh, maybe not all that effectively, but certainly with, uh, with good heart and endless energy. Now, Oh, the Zebedee gang were all a little nuts. And a couple of the defense lawyers were a little eccentric, and the judge was very uh, difficult as well. So at the very end of this uh, long and difficult case, I went to see my client in the cells when the jury was still deliberating, and he said to me, you know, Mr. Zadok, we've been in this trial for four weeks roughly, I look around the courtroom, all my co-accused are nuts, uh, the judge is nuts, the crown's a little crazy, some of the defense lawyers are nuts, and Mr. Sapiano is the craziest of everyone. And sometimes I think to myself, I'm the most normal person in this courtroom, and I'm a convicted double murderer. Well, some of you may think that this story cast discredit on Edward, but when I told it to him, he had a very hearty laugh because he appreciated that it really summed up his uh, approach to the defense in that trial. So Peter, um, give us a little taste of the famous U.S. Chuck, uh, Justice U.S. Chuck story. Which we all love. Yeah, Tex. Um, that was his nickname, Tex. And um, Liam O'Connor provides a surprising account of, of that story. So this is around the time that I first met Edward. This is around the time that I first got to know Edward. And I remember him telling me, if you're not doing anything, you should come down to court tomorrow. You're going to love what you see. And he goes, I'm going to call a judge a racist. <laughs> and I just remember rolling my eyes thinking that uh, maybe maybe not tomorrow. <laughs> let's, hear, uh, let's hear Liam's account. It's more, it's more thorough on this issue. I'll tell you about one of Edward's uh, more famous or perhaps infamous cases. Um, it was a murder case he did around 
2005. It started in 2003, but it ended in 2005. Eventually, it ended up uh, at 361 University Avenue in front of Justice Eugene Uuschuk. Um It was Edwards' long-standing opinion that uh, Justice Uuschuk had a history of bias and siding with the Crown and a history uh, of, of decisions that were Edward felt were critical of the judge, um, and uh, Edward, I think, put together 14 cases, um, plus some other affidavit materials, asking Justice Uuschuk to recuse himself on the murder uh, case of his client. And I say his client loosely because it was actually my client um, just before, or in the middle of 2003, I had won a, uh, a difficult, um, we'll call a police lying case for this young man, and uh, very difficult, and I was pretty happy with myself. Um, he was acquitted, and then weeks later, he was arrested for murder, and he didn't come back to me. Um, he went to Edward, or Edward went to him. I accused Edward of going to him and said, you scooped my client, and he just laughed, um, said, too bad, um, so sad. Uh, um, what made it worse was to add, add insult to injury. Uh, was the application. Um, Edward came to me with an affidavit he had drafted um, just before trial. Um, and in it, uh, he wanted me to sign a, a declaration, an affidavit, saying that um, it was commonly known in the jails that Justice Uuschuk uh, was better known by the nickname Justice Uuschuk. Um And he had uh, it typed up with my name to sign to it and uh, asked me to sign it. And I said, no, like hell, uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, it's bad enough you scoop my client, but you're not going to ruin my legal career. Um, and and secondly, or most importantly, perhaps, I, I didn't agree with it. Um, I had done a number of cases with Justice Uuschuk, and um, we had a good relationship, and I wasn't interested in, in uh, ruining my career or signing something I didn't believe in. But Edward absolutely believed it, um, if there was any bias in that case, I, I can tell you it was from the reporters, especially uh, Christy Blatchford, who uh, um, tortured Edward in the in the in the press for bringing that. I think she was writing for the Globe and Mail back then, but she was uh, frankly, I thought her writing was 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 uh, libel and slanderous against Edward for him bringing the application. But Edward Edward didn't care, and Edward didn't get in a firefight with her. Um, and that was his position with the press. Uh, never get in a fight with uh, somebody who buys their ink by the by the barrel. That was that was Edwards' uh, quote. Never buy, uh, or, you know, never never fight with someone who who buys uh, their ink by the barrel. But uh, he never got into a, a fight with Blatchford. But he got skewered in the media for bringing this. Justice Tewajuk didn't take it personally. He 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 laughed most of the way through the application, and at the end of the day, dismissed it. Um, and, and did not uh, did not recuse himself from the case. The case went ahead, um, and Edward, at the end of the day, got a hung jury out of it. Uh, the client wasn't prosecuted, wasn't re-prosecuted, and they, they stayed the case. But um, oddly enough, and and I and I I was in front of Justice Uuschuk for years after that. Um, I thought he was a good judge before it, before this recusal application, but. Oddly enough, I thought I thought he was a better better judge after it. Somehow, um, 
that criticism that Edward claimed, um, I think, made Justice Yuschuk a uh, even better judge than he had been, oddly enough. And it, it didn't certainly didn't hurt Edward's career. Edward Edward lived off that uh, off that case for a while and got an awful lot of clients from it because uh, uh, the guys in the jail loved loved reading it um, every day and loved the fact that Edward would even bring the application. Um, it was crazy. Uh, I didn't support it, but uh, um, it, it's a as, a, as my grandmother would say, it's an ill wind that doesn't blow some good. It, uh, it, 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 it blew some good. So these are the more well-known stories of Edward Sapiano. Yeah. The, uh, the, there's one more collateral uh, outcome of that uh, U.S. Chuck application. Edward never had to appear in front of U.S. Chuck again. None of Edward's clients ever went before U.S. Chuck. Smart for business. The other thing he's he's pretty famous for is coming up with this uh, concept of uh, peace options. Can you talk a little bit about that, Will? Yeah, uh, peace options uh, is an anonymous gun surrender program that Edward started with. Uh, I forget who he started it with, um, but it's. Uh, I think Jennifer Penman was one of the first lawyers that actually did a gun run with him. But it's a service, it's a program that run by lawyers anonymously where uh, we collect guns and uh, we turn them over to the police. Um, a lot of the calls come from uh, people who really don't know what to do and really don't want to have any contact with the police and don't want police coming to their homes to collect guns. And so we'll pick them up and surrender them to the police. Um, 2015, 2016, I took over the program from Edward. And since then, we've surrendered about 400 guns to the Toronto Police Service. Well, that's good. That's very effective, uh, all things considered. I mean, it's, you know, the gun problem is a prevalent problem, but at least this gives people an out. Um, and let's hear Jennifer Penman's account of, uh, of the first ever gun run. My name is Jennifer Penman. I knew Edward Sapiano as a friend and a fellow criminal lawyer. The story I'd like to tell about Edward is not because it's particularly funny, but because in my mind, it's classic Edward. Edward was the brainchild of a program called Peace Options. Peace Options is an, anon an anonymous gun surrender program. Gun violence is and was a problem in Toronto. People want to get rid of their guns without landing themselves in jail and peace options is an answer to those issues. The idea, the idea is that someone can call the program and arrange for one of us or two of us to come pick up their guns and transport them to the police to turn them in safely and anonymously. This very notion of possessing and transporting these firearms on its face strikes most people as being massively illegal. But Edward, with typical ingenuity and guts, believed that the public interest in getting the guns off the street would win the day. This was Edward through and through. My part of this with Edward came about on the very first gun run for the program. Edward asked me to go along with him. It wasn't lost on me that the fact that Edward asking me to come along was because I was a young mother at the time. In fact, he actually made it pretty clear that this was one of the reasons why I was going along. The optics of the police arresting me in those circumstances would have not gone over well. Always finding an angle to push the edge of the envelope, R. Edward. 
So that's what happened. Together we went to some guy's house, went inside. He showed us these guns that he had. There was four or five of them. Uh, we then took them and put them in the trunk of Edward's car and drove to the police station. I was convinced there was going to be some sort of high-risk takedown on the highway. Some officers met us in the parking lot and quickly told us that what we were doing was illegal. Edward just as quickly pointed out that it wasn't. They took us into the station to catalog the guns. They kept us there a while, but all was well. The first successful gun run. Edward, a person and lawyer like no other, he is sorely missed. And I think he's missed as well by many um, young counsel who still were developing that relationship with him. There was a lot of young lawyers. He loved, loved, loved helping young lawyers out. He had nothing but time for uh, anybody who had ambition and love for the criminal law. Um, You showed the slightest interest in your clients. You showed the slightest interest in pushing the envelope. He had your back. I'm going to play three clips, one from Alex Tricka, one from Franklin Lyons, and one from Marianne Salee, all... um, provided some different insights into Edward's assistance with the young counsel, Alex Tricka. Alex Tricka here. I met Edward when I was in law school and he drew me right away into criminal law. In my early years, I saw him mostly as the mythical figure around the office that would drop in here and there with great law stories. Years later, I'm proud to say we became good friends. I have great admiration for him. I'm sure many will talk about his legal skills and stories, but I'd like to talk a little about Edward, where I think he was misunderstood. He could be abrasive and harsh and thus divisive, but those that knew him well knew he had a heart of gold. And Edward was a larger-than-life figure. He was always talking, gesturing, entertaining. Sometimes talking about himself in the third person, (laughs) always playing the part of the protagonist always anti-authority, always rooting for the little guy to stick it to the big man, and always devoted to justice. Yes, law, but even more to natural justice. He believed in humankind, he believed in rehabilitation, and he believed every person through discipline, dedication, and application can change and become the best version of themselves. And that's really what I wanted to share, not a particular single story, but a few instances that I thought spoke to his character. I've witnessed him enter junior lawyers many times, and it was always critical, yet positive, but more so it was energetic. Without fail, the junior lawyer would walk away no longer worried about their trial, no longer stressed, but beaming with excitement to get in there and argue the issue. He wanted everyone to do well. He was rooting for everyone to be great, and he was unapologetic in telling you nicely or sometimes not so nicely to be better. I think he inspired many young lawyers in this way. There are many of these little instances, most of which I forget, but I do recall a few. One time I worked an all-nighter to finish putting together some application materials due in the morning for him. A lot of writing. Um, It was understood he would read the draft in the morning before submitting it. He liked it almost exactly as it was, everything except a rather insignificant grammar mistake. He yelled at me. He then told me he's only yelling because I'm too smart to have something like this happen. I'm not too smart, of course, but I got the message. There to be great was his message. Always aim for perfection. I saw him talk to a particularly competent clerk in one of our trials. She was great. He complimented her and encouraged her to go to law school as she was considering it. It wasn't just fluff. You could tell he meant it. He saw her potential and he thought it was precious. 
After our trial, he told her he will be disappointed if he doesn't see her in the trenches in a few years. Dare to be great. I saw him confront a girlfriend of one of his male clients charged with murder outside the courtroom. That 20 or 21-year-old client was charged with murdering the victim with a firearm, a shooting. His girlfriend came to watch the prelim. She wore a very hard-to-miss gold chain featuring, of course, a firearm. He lost it on her outside. Not just for the sake of his client, but her stupidity um, in, the, in doing this, in, in, in the action. He lectured her. He lectured her almost like a, an uncle, a father almost. He told her, it's girls like you that make guys like, like him do stuff like this. Hard truths. Many would have been insulted, but his charisma carried the day and you could see it on her face that it made her think. And, and she became reflective, and I think she too was inspired by the end of the prelim, inspired to be better. I remember him also telling me when I was particularly frustrated with an unreasonable crown, he said, don't ever whine or beg the crown for anything. It's pathetic. Just bring your applications and outwork them. He was tireless. I will miss him, and I think he was irreplaceable to the criminal bar. He was a divisive figure because he could be abrasive, relentlessly abrasive. But his devotion to justice and genuine will to push everyone forward at all costs, this was second to none. Rest in peace, Edward. Alex hit all the high notes for sure. Franklin Lyons. This is Franklin Lyons. I'm a criminal defense lawyer in Toronto, Ontario. I was introduced to Edward Sapiano by my then boss, Edward Royal, who uh, invited me to his farm property in north of Coburg. And I went there um, the day before I had a trial in Coburg. And we went through the disclosure together. And um, he helped me prepare a cross-examination that went very well. He was very kind with his time. He was also uh, very warm and welcoming. And we went around a property together and had a, had a wonderful day together. Um, and we kept in touch and we were always very friendly and he was uh, always very generous with his time and um, in good spirits, even though he was sick and um, I'll treasure his memory. Marianne Salee. My name is Marianne Salee. I'm a criminal defense lawyer and I was a good friend of Edward. I remember the first day I met Edward Sapiano. It was sometime in the summer of 2016. I was in the office and I could hear a man yelling excitedly from this round table area in our main hall. I remember I walked down to see what all the yelling was about and I saw this man with a big black and gray scruffy beard he was wearing jeans and a plaid shirt, and he was just gesticulating wildly. And I remember I saw Ted Royal sitting next to him, and he was smiling widely and listening to what uh, could only be described as a rant by this very passionate, loud man. And I remember thinking to myself, why is Ted meeting with this client in the main hall? Seconds later, I'm introduced to Edward, who immediately takes the opportunity to tell me about his exciting news. 
he had just purchased a gravestone for himself and he wanted me to see the pictures. He had his phone in his hand and he began proudly scrolling through the images. I uh, remember looking down at the photos and having to hold back a gasp when I saw this absolutely enormous tombstone with this enormous gargoyle sitting on top. Edward said that he had purchased not only the tombstone and the plot of land, but also the plot of land immediately to the left and the plot of land immediately to the right, all for himself and, quote, my ego. And even though I didn't know him at all at that point, I knew that this larger-than-life gargoyle was perfectly fitting for this wonderfully bizarre man who, from the moment you met him, was in every way larger than life. Over the years, Edward and I became good friends, and we talked regularly about work and life, and uh, in particular about his medical situation as he was gradually deteriorating. And in anticipation of this memorial podcast, I was going back and reminiscing over our many text conversations in particular. And I pulled a few of them that I think captured some of who Edward Sapiano was pretty well. The first was November 15th, 2018, and by this time Edward's medical conditions were sort of catching up with him. He said to me, I'm downsizing, moving to the farm full time, transferred my office line to my cell, only giving fuck off and go away quotes from now on, except for murders. I replied, how's the blood pressure? He said, I'm a ticking time bomb at 220 over 124 blood pressure. I'm only, emphasis on the only, I'm only doing two murder trials. As long as you will live, you will never again meet anyone capable of functioning at those numbers. I've been hyped my whole life. That is likely what's keeping me alive. And indeed, anyone who knew Edward Sapiano even a little bit, knew that he was probably the most hyped person you would ever meet. June 18th, 2018, Edward had shared an email with me that he sent to a friend of a friend of his seeking advice for his daughter who was entering the field. Quote, Hello. I often get young people calling me to discuss careers in law. Over the years, I've mentored undergrads with an eye on law, law students, and young lawyers. The young lawyer on my last murder trial found himself 66 feet in the air, precariously perched while holding a wrench on my wind turbine while I tightened the bolt from the other side. The young lawyer on my current murder trial has to accompany me after court this Tuesday to pick up a beehive a queen bee and 15,000 workers, and deliver it to my farm. 
The week after that, I have a law student coming out to my farm to help me clean the barn for Beatrice and Princess. Beatrice and Princess were Edward Sapiano's beloved goats while discussing law and law school. He also gets to watch my closing address on a murder trial. A willingness to courageously step outside one's comfort zone and rise to the challenge is what it takes to succeed in law. Does your daughter have what it takes? And is she prepared to be shamelessly exploited in order to share the company of genius? If so, have her give me a call. Now, that was an email that Edward sent to a complete stranger, which gives you an idea of how much Edward was absolutely true to who Edward was, no matter the context. June 20th, 2018, Edward sent me a clip of uh, what appears to be a newspaper article opining about a murder trial that he had recently completed. Quote, Sapiano says Copeland killed Nguyen in self-defense after she attacked him with a knife following an argument. In his closing remarks, Sapiano said the situation facing the jury was similar to that faced by the jury in the novel To Kill a Mockingbird. He noted that in the fictional court case, a black defendant had been falsely accused of sexually assaulting a white woman, and it was ultimately the racism in the southern town rather than evidence that convicted this character. Sapiano voiced concerns that something similar could happen in this case, not because of racism, but misandry, prejudice against the male sex. Quote, you can't turn on a radio or a TV or go on the internet or listen to a politician without being reminded that men are the scourge of society, said Sapiano. Quote, politicians in our society are tripping over themselves to get to a microphone and say, we believe women in domestic assault situations. What's the opposite side of that coin? We don't believe men. Sapiano emphasized that he is not comparing misandry to black history in America, but argued the discussion was warranted because there were elements of misandry in the way the jury is being asked to look at this case. He said jurors are being asked to box Copeland into the stereotypical role of the man who kills because, quote, if he couldn't have her, no one could. Sapiano argued the Crown's theory is wrong and that it relies on improper stereotypes and assumptions, not evidence. I thought that that piece captured the type of advocate that Edward was, unyieldingly fierce, unafraid to take risks, always boldly advancing his client's case and defiantly calling out the injustices that he saw, no matter the politics, no matter the context. I'll leave you with one more, and that is a message that I received from Edward Sapiano on July 13th, 2018. Morning, Tommy. Edward, by the way, had uh, a habit of calling me Tommy, which was an inside joke and one I will not go into on this podcast. Morning, Tommy. This morning, I'm hosting a couple of neighbors for breakfast. Strawberries and feta cheese omelets made by me. 
Then it's clearing the paths in my forest with clippers to make it readily accessible for building my time machine this summer, deep in the woods. Then I hope to do some carpentry work to repair two old chairs. Got some new tools yesterday. Guys love their new tools. I hope your day is productive and rewarding. 15 set dates, a bail hearing, and a trial all in one day. Those are the days of my youth and your current challenge. Enjoy it now and push yourself hard because when you get to my stage, you will want to look back and know that you were something. Now, I think that the very fact that we are talking about this man and doing this tribute proves that Edward Sapiano not only talked a big talk, but he walked a big walk. He was something. And I will forever remember him as one of my greatest mentors and most remarkable of friends. All you have to do is do a case with Marianne Salee and you will see the impact that Edward has had on her. She's a fantastic advocate for her clients and her enthusiasm in that um, story, I, I think, comes out. I want to talk for a minute about the, something that she mentioned, uh, which is Edward's burial plot. There's a, there's a Facebook page called Toronto Cemetery Tours. On October 12th, 2021, the following post. Mystery solved. Sadly, the plot owner, sadly, the plot owner had to die for us to finally know who owns this unusual and noteworthy monument of a gargoyle with wings spread and a hand over his eyes sitting atop a tall gray granite column. The question of who owned this plot was one I received frequently. The office, as well, was constantly asked about it and replied that the owner wished to remain anonymous. First thing I noticed as I pulled into the Young Street gates of Mount Pleasant Cemetery this weekend was a plaque finally affixed to the column. Name, Edward J. Sapiano. Birth, June 18th, 1962. Death, March 21st, 2020, occupation, barrister and solicitor, criminal defense lawyer, and state's adversary. Final words, because those who can must, just as those who could, did. A quick search of Mr. Sapiano's name reveals a very accomplished and criminal defense lawyer with an illustrious career starting after being called to the bar in 1993. He was a critic of the status quo and doing things one way just because that's the way he had always it that's the way they had always been done. They list the many of his cases and his accomplishments. And then it goes on to say Sapiano became ill in 2014 and had to step down from practice. He returned in 2017, becoming the only lawyer to actively practice while undergoing 10 plus hours of day of dialysis. 
sadly, Edward passed away from kidney disease in 2020. He was only 57 years old. According to a friend, he spent his last day at his farm in Gore's Landing, north of Coburg. He left behind the legacy and a graveyard monument that we'll be talking about for a long time. Paula Roachman. There are two stories I want to tell about Edward, which I think say so much about him. The first is when he was a new student at Pinkofskir Lockyer Quinter, PLK. New client to the office, charged with murder. Edward goes to the jail, because we actually did that. We went to jails and interviews the client. The client gives a story which would confirm a situation of self-defense. Essentially says a person broke into his place. When the person broke into his place, he was sitting with his girlfriend at a table in their living room. He had a knife beside him that they were cutting melon with. And so he grabbed the knife and the person was stabbed. Edward, upon hearing this news, knew it was essential to get the melon. He went from the jail to the person's apartment, to the dumpster, and found the melon. He brought it back. He didn't think to tell anybody about this, knowing he had this crucial evidence. He just simply put it in the fridge. Many months later, when someone was cleaning out the fridge, they wondered why this very yucky melon was now in there. Edward had to confess what he had done in terms of going and getting the melon and bringing it back, but forgetting to take a picture of it. But that was Edward, complete enthusiasm, get out to the jail, gather something, don't get told to do something, just figure it out, just go do it. The other thing, story I want to tell about Edward is the work he did with respect to the corruption that was taking place, or maybe still is taking place, in the Toronto Drug Squad. It was Edward who through sitting in the lawyer's lounge, overhearing stories from numerous defense counsel about a group of officers who were clearly stealing monies and other things when they were executing search warrants. Commonly, they weren't even their own search warrants. They were jumping search warrants from other people. It was Edward who coordinated all of this, bringing together multiple different peoples who couldn't have known each other, who had the same story about the same crew from the drug squad. Edward's quality in this is that he was incredible at being in court, often making pretty provocative, outrageous statements about things, but being able to come into the hallway and at times just laugh or just be humorous. He often made pretty outrageous comments in court, but he understood the importance of humor. He understood the importance of being in the hallways of a courthouse and getting to know the people. Police officers in some ways hated Edward, but on the other hand, they loved him because they could see how hard he worked. They could get to know him. They could understand his character. And that was what was so important. And I think Edward shows this, and it should be a reminder to all new young lawyers. You will get to be a good lawyer, an exceptional lawyer like Edward was, only when you are in the hallways of a courthouse. Edward's personality is what allowed him to shine. It allowed us to, on one hand, roll our eyes when we heard another Edward argument, but then see him in the hallways of a courthouse and see his incredible personality and skill at getting along with so many people. It was in the hallways that Edward knew and to which we all learned 
that it is there we learn about the personalities of different people. We show our human side. We ask each other questions of people we might not know all that well. We get to know all of the characters. It was Edward, I think, in so many ways, with his larger-than-life personality, that shows us today what we are missing. It is Edward's personality that shows us that it is being in the hallways of our workplace, the courthouse, that is the only way that we can be an exceptional lawyer like Edward was. Edward did and said so many things that could only happen because we were there in person, because we all knew Edward, everyone, the judges, the crowns, police officers, and all could learn some ways to roll our eyes at him, but in other ways to respect how hard he worked, how much he cared, how much he cared to jump into a dumpster and pull out a melon that he thought might help a client in a murder trial. Edward's example to us all should be, I hope, that is our human touch in the courthouses that will bring about the amazing successes that Edward had. It is Edward working in the courthouse that unveiled the deep corruption within the drug squad. It is Edward who, working in the courthouse with multitudes of lawyers, very much spearheaded at investigation that ultimately resulted in charges against numerous officers. It is Edward's over-the-board personality that allowed him to be the exceptional lawyer that he was. When Edward was in the middle of a murder trial in Newmarket, he knew he was profoundly ill. He had not yet been diagnosed. He was in the intensive care unit of a hospital. He called me that night to come over and see him, which I did. He was not concerned that the doctors were concerned that he may, may or may not live. He was concerned about the files he had in his office and how his clients could be taken care of. I spent many hours with Edward that night just going through his cases to figure out how everyone could be taken care of. Edward, of course, came out of the hospital and had a number more years of successful litigating. I remember visiting Edward on his farm He had so much fun there. I remember when you came to visit Edward, you had to bring Skittles for his goats. He had all kinds of animals and really was in his heyday. In balancing what he needed to do in terms of his health and work, it was always difficult. There wasn't an easy answer in terms of what he could do. Edward is so greatly missed by all of us who knew him so well. Stephen Bernstein. Edward was a kind of person that if you confided in him, your secret was always safe. Despite his bombastic personality, he understood the concept of privacy, both in his professional career and as a friend. And by the way, he was a wonderful friend. He was generous. He was kind. We had amazing times and hospitality up at his farm. And I think that that is something that will be the true legacy of Edward Sapiano, a person who cared about everybody that he came in contact with. 
truly was one of a kind. Lior Shemesh. All right. This audio recording is a tribute to my dear friend, Edward Sapiano, who I miss tremendously every single day. Edward and I spoke daily. He and I would talk mostly about the law and our cases. And Edward, with all his passion and exuberance, would typically be screaming about the injustices that plague our system. He actually couldn't be stopped when he was on this rampage, and I would often have to let him get it all out before I could move on. Edward was always up for a talk about the various ways that the police failed to discharge their duties properly and the countless ways that the system was a complete failure. He did so with such immense passion. Edward was an amazing soul. He loved his work and loved the good fight. Everyone knew the incredible amounts of time and energy he devoted to his cases and the meticulous ways he agonized over details and facts of a case. He would know those facts and understand the issues quickly. He memorized the specifics and was detail-oriented. However, for all of his precision when it came to cases, Edward could not remember anyone's name. I mean, anyone. He would often forget the very name of the crown he had been sitting beside for well over a month when I would ask him, who's your crown? He would call them Lisa something, when in reality their name was not even close to Elisa. He couldn't remember anyone's name without writing it down or without a reminder. His mind typically raced, and he would often be too quick to speak and sometimes forget what he was even talking about. I loved him for all his faults and all of his quirks. He made me laugh and was a genuine friend. Edward supported me in my darkest of hours when I was charged and was forced to face the same system that I had been working in. He often would call me to just give me a pep talk and assure me that all would be fine. He did this at a time he was battling his own illness. He called daily and he never forgot to tell me that he was there and was my number one cheerleader. He sent emails and text messages just to brighten my days and he constantly reminded me of my worth, my significance to this field and my best attribute, being a mother. He swore to me that he would be showing up to my preliminary inquiry even if it killed him. He was so sick and yet still arrived, weak, cold, and incredibly unwell. He ultimately was transported out of the courthouse in an ambulance following the day's hearing because he had promised me that he would be there and would have never broken his promise. Edward Sapiano was a warrior in every single way. When Edward loved you, you knew it. When he supported you, you felt it 10 times over. When Edward was mad at you, you also knew it and he would not be shy about it. He spoke his mind and he was unapologetic about it. Life was too short, he would say, too short to waste complaining and too short to spend dwelling. Fix it, he would say, change your landscape, 
flipped the script. He was a change maker and a street fighter in the courtroom. He fought hard and made people pay attention. There is no other Edward J. Sapiano. And don't you ever call him or refer to him as Ed because he hated that more than anything else. When Edward was dying, the best gift I could give him was a companion to spend time with him. My phone calls were no longer enough. People's visits were not sustaining him. And so I got him a dog. Bella, the old black mutt who was too old for many, was mature and just perfect for Edward. She would follow Edward around and stay with him. Never a bother, never a nuisance, a pure and loyal friend. Just what Edward loved the most. Bella stayed with Edward until the end by his side, loyal and trustworthy. As his illness progressed, Edward was so grateful for the times he had, the memories he had banked, and he was especially thankful for his close friends and family, particularly his goddaughters. He loved them tremendously and constantly talked about them. As I walk into 361 University Avenue for a case, I always think of him. I always smile while thinking of him and always wonder what Edward would say about this case and what a laugh he would have if I told him about the cross I had just completed. Following his death, I constantly would reach for the phone to update Edward about the case. I did this for a long time, actually. Oh, how I miss that deep, loud, and boisterous laugh. I miss you, Edward J., every damn day. Well, as Edward's closest friend... I'm going to give you the last word. I, I don't know if I could follow up on what Leora said. Um, he really did love his friends. He did love his time with Leora and with Liam and with Stephen Bernstein. Um, I miss the guy. I miss those calls uh, on my way back from court. I miss the debriefings. Um, I was fortunate enough to spend the last spend time with him on his last few days and uh, and uh, I, I know how much he loved his friends I know how much uh, he uh, he enjoyed the criminal law I know how much he uh, really uh, enjoyed um, helping young lawyers out there won't be another one like him I echo those comments I, I have one email from him from I was doing a case and I think he was following in some capacity, sent me an email, Marco, it sounds like you did a terrific job. Becoming public enemy number one in our court means you're doing something right. I'm glad you took the time to share this with me. It made my day on a day that needed being made. Keep up the great work and of course be careful. We have enemies in high and low places. Edward J. I thought that was going to be the last time that I heard from Edward Sapiano, but February 24th, 2023, which is today, the day we're recording this episode, I received 
text message. At 9.23 in the morning. From a phone number. 416-214-9929. Saved in my phone as Edward Sapiano. Just spoke with JAXA. I thought you knew I wasn't dead. Please keep it quiet. In Malta. Might be back next year. Kidney transplant went very well, but still not ready to return. Sorry, I thought you were in the know on this, EJS. My response, whatever this is, it is going into the tribute episode. Thank you, Edward. I ask you to recognize Mr. Jones for what he is and not imagine him to be the monster that the crown is alleging him to be. Is that the person you saw testifying? Let's not forget what murder is. This is not just a word to be tossed around. It is the intentional termination of human life. Or it is the infliction of bodily harm that you know is likely to cause death and is reckless as to whether death ensued or not. That's not nice. That is a ruthless, intentional ending of human life. Well, you had the opportunity to observe Mr. Jones. Yes, sure. He's a petty criminal, but a killer? I submit to you, we cannot toss around this word lightly. Murder. Sure, he killed somebody. But it's a big stretch to go from killing somebody to murder. People die all the time, even in Toronto. How many? Is it a hundred? Pedestrians, bicyclists? who die every year in accidents. We do not have those people arrested for murder. No, accidents happen to good and bad people. He is therefore not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter based on the objective foreseeability of bodily harm that I have referred to. I ask and he asks that you convict him accordingly. He is not asking for mercy, He is not asking to be let off of anything. He is a criminal who does his time for the crimes he commits. We are at the end. I thank you for your attention. That's all I have to say. One day, Edward left a message on my voicemail. And it was a message that was really unusual. He left a voicemail that said, Bernstein, I have three things to say to you. Number one, you're a motherfucker. Number two, you're a motherfucker. Number three, you're a motherfucker. Love you. Talk to you later.